You are now listening to Well-Fed Women, the show that's been radically changing the way women perceive health, fitness, and their bodies since 2015. I'm your host, Noelle Tarr. Submit your questions to wellfedwomen at gmail.com, and you can keep up with the show on Instagram at wellfedwomen. Welcome to the Well-Fed Women podcast. This is episode number 327. I am your host, Noel Tarr of coconutsandkettlebells.com. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner and a National Strength and Conditioning Association certified personal trainer. Today, I'm thrilled to be talking with Laura Bryden. She was a special request from all of you in the community, and I was stoked that she said yes to an interview because a lot of times people say no, which I respect. Um, and I was just so happy that she said yes, and she's, she's with us today. So she is one of the leading experts when it comes to hormonal health, period problems, and perimenopause. Her first book, which was published in 2017, is called The Period Repair Manual. Many of you are likely familiar with that book. It's like pink and it has white writing on it. And then this year she published the Hormone Repair Manual. So both are just incredible resources for all women, especially young women who are just getting their periods and... um. I mean, all women, really. But I, I think that period repair manual, man, if I had that when I was younger, it would have made such a difference. So today we're just going to be focusing on talking about period problems like PCOS and endometriosis, balancing hormones in general, and also we're going to be answering some of y'all's questions about perimenopause. So before we jump in, this podcast is here today because of Element. It's getting warmer outside, and that means more sweating, especially during workouts, since a lot of us are outside and in our garages. I'm personally a super fan of electrolyte replacement, and I've spent years personally making my own, which it wasn't efficient or cost-effective. Uh, because I didn't have a brand that I trusted, and now I do with Element. Electrolytes are important because water absorption in your body is dependent upon the absorption of key electrolytes like sodium, magnesium, and potassium. And you actually lose electrolytes when you sweat and when you go to the bathroom, and they have to be replaced through diet and supplementation. And if you're following a whole foods diet, like so many of us are in this community, um, you can be chronically deficient in electrolytes, and that can show up like as dizziness, muscle cramps, headaches, fatigue, and sleep disturbances. So Element actually makes these grab-and-go replacement supplementation packs. You just take one of the recharge packets, open it, and then mix it with water and sip on it. No sugar, no gluten, no fillers, no artificial ingredients, and it's paleo-friendly. I've been using it now every day that I work out for the past three months, and it's made such a huge difference. I don't feel dizzy or hungry or just like like fatigued on my workout days and they just came out with uh, a new watermelon flavor which I uh, love like it's like the best love my post-workout because I get to sip on this it's kind of silly but it's a big deal um so all you have to do is uh to get a free sample pack so they have like this cool offer for us where you can um get a box of a bunch of samples and try all the flavors. So go to drinklmnt.com slash wellfed. You'll get that sample box for totally free. You just have to pay for shipping. Again, that's drinklmnt.com slash wellfed. Click get yours and then grab yourself some packets to have on hand. 
I think it's great for emergency preparedness. I think it's great for workouts. It's also great as a labor aid. It's great for kids when they're working out. Uh, note, the watermelon flavor isn't in the sample box, but you can add a box of it to your order. And um, if you, like, after you get the sample boxes, if you want to like for the best value afterwards to buy actual boxes of the flavors that you like, go to drinkelement.com slash wellfed, and then you can do a value bundle. So add three boxes and then you'll get one for free and then you get free shipping on minimum orders. Okay, let's bring on Laura. Laura Bryden is a naturopathic doctor and author of the best-selling books, Period Repair Manual and Hormone Repair Manual. She has more than 20 years' experience in women's health and currently has consulting rooms in Christchurch, New Zealand, where she's at right now. She treats women with PCOS, PMS, endometriosis, perimenopause, and many other hormone and period-related health problems. Her website is Laura Bryden, so L-A-R-A-B-R-I-D-N.com. We'll link to her Instagram and her website and her books in the show notes. Welcome, Laura. Yeah, thanks. It's early Saturday morning in New Zealand mm-hmm. and winter. So yeah, it's kind of the opposite in every oh, aspect. Wow. Yeah. Thanks. thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah. So I want to dive right in because we have so much to discuss and I want to use your time wisely. I was reading the period re- repair manual this week and, and you got me right on the first page talking about the menstrual, the first chapter, talking about the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. And you said, and this is a quote, it says, your period is not just your period. It is an expression of your underlying health. When you are healthy, your menstrual cycle will arrive smoothly, regularly, and without symptoms. And when you are unhealthy in some way, your cycle will tell the story. This is something that women are not taught, definitely not as a teenager when we get our periods. So maybe just let's start with what is a normal cycle and what's a normal period and how does that change throughout a woman's life? Because I know you're an expert on both women who are young and struggling with their, you know, maybe period problems like PMS, but also 40 plus women who are having different and new period experiences. For sure. Yeah. So let's talk about all of that. I'll just say that for women who are 40 plus, that is second puberty. So we, we, yeah, we start to go through some inevitable changes with our periods, just as we did during first puberty. Um, but we'll start with the women, adult, you know, young adult women, the, the peak years of cycling. The period, I set the bar quite high. The, um, the period should be regular should arrive regularly. That doesn't mean it has to be a 28-day cycle on the dot, because as you know, that's just not the way it works. A normal, healthy menstrual cycle arrives, the the bleed arrives anywhere between every 21 days up to every 35 days for an adult, up to every 45 days for a teenager. And it's timed that way because that's how ovulation works. We're going to talk a lot about ovulation today, but ovulation is the main event of the menstrual cycle. It's how you make the hormones you need. And to ovulate regularly would occur in this roughly monthly pattern. So the period should arrive monthly. It should not cause pain or significant PMS, although, of course, it's fine to get a little, you know, slightly different feeling with your mood that's okay mood and appetite and energy can change in the two phases of the menstrual cycle but it shouldn't cause distress and then finally it shouldn't be painful it shouldn't be too heavy um the maximum 
sort of acceptable amount of menstrual fluid loss over all the days of period. Period. The period is about 80 milliliters, which equates to about five tablespoons. So we don't lose as much as we you know, think we do. It's re- for most women, it's just only a few tablespoons over all the days. And of course, if you're, if you're a listener sitting there thinking, well, actually, my period is not like that, then the first thing I'll say is it could be. <laughs> That's the purpose of my work and my books is most women can get there. That's my experience with thousands of patients over the last 25 years. It's, mo- you know, I think women are given this idea that the menstrual cycle is somehow separate from our health. But of course, it's, as you just said, it's an expression of our health. And most women can achieve easy menstrual cycles. Hmm. So most women, if they have period issues, they go to the doctor and they talk about their period problems. And then, of course, they're prescribed the number one solution, which is hormonal birth control. So why is that? Why is the pill, like, what are the industry has just sort of defaulted to to fix period problems. We're locked in a paradigm that started, as you know, in the 50s or 60s when the pill was invented for contraception. And at that time, contraception was, you know, using it for contraception was not yet legal, which is sort of hard to imagine now from our perspective. So they had to come up with, it was sort of, it was a marketing tactic, essentially, this idea that it could, well, you're not taking it to avoid pregnancy, you're actually taking it to, you know, quote, unquote, normalize the period or regulate the period. And unfortunately, somehow in the last half a century, that's kind of morphed into from being just a marketing tactic to being somehow real, which of course, it's not because hormonal birth control, particularly the combined pill works by switching off ovulation. And I've just said that ovulation is the main event of the menstrual cycle. So clearly, the bleed that happens on the pill is not a menstrual cycle. It's a withdrawal bleed from the contraceptive drugs, which are not real hormones. And there's no medical reason to bleed monthly on the pill. There never was. And there is still no reason to do it. So it's, it really is one of these cases where it's a purely just a false reassurance to women and I guess to doctors that the the bleed, you know, the period is happening monthly, but it, it doesn't mean anything. It truly is one of these emperor's new clothes situations, if you know what I mean. Like everyone, mm. we've got this thing sitting there, this idea that you could regulate the menstrual cycle with the pill when you absolutely cannot. And yet I, I'm just waiting for the, you know, the penny to drop with everyone to finally say, okay, this is crazy. Like we can't, <laughs> we can't use the drugs for that purpose. Not to say, which is not to say you never take the pill. I mean, sure, you could take the pill for avoiding pregnancy or controlling, I guess, you know, pain or other symptoms, which I would argue there's other options for that. But so I don't want to make women feel like, you know, they've made a mistake, I guess, by taking the pill, but it's just, I'm really trying to detach from that narrative that it can normalize or regulate the menstrual cycle when in fact it shuts it down and it induces what can only be described as a temporary chemical menopause. Because if Hmm. you try to measure the estrogen or progesterone of a woman while she's on the pill, you'll find very low levels, you know, close to zero. That's because the ovaries are suppressed, right? Hmm. There's, There's no, you don't make hormones when you're on the pill and like I said, that, you know, the drugs that you're taking are not the same as the body's hormones. So you're, one of the main things that's happening is you're not getting the benefit 
of your own, of real estrogen and progesterone when you're on the pill or other types of hormonal birth control to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I found super interesting. Even something that I hadn't really considered is that these hormones, your actual, when your body makes estrogen and estradiol, for example, or progesterone, they have benefit. But when you, when you're taking the pill, the pill doesn't actually contain hormones that have these benefits and they don't actually regulate or fix the problem. Whereas a lot of times it's like, oh, take the pill to regulate your hormones. But what you're saying Mm -hmm. is the pill is not the same hormones. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, They're contraceptive drugs. The estrogen in the pill is something called ethanol, ethanol estradiol. It's actually a little bit more similar to real, to real estradiol, real estrogen than progestins are to progest, So the real departure from hormones actually occurs on the progestin side of hormonal birth control because none of those progestins, it's called progesterone, none of them have the same benefits of progesterone. In fact, really the only way that they're similar to real progesterone is that they thin the uterine lining or they affect the uterine lining. Their effect on everything else, including brain and breasts and metabolism, is different from real progesterone. Hmm. So yeah. what is so I have, what a blog, is, I have a blog yeah. I'll just I'll just mention I have a blog post called The Crucial Difference Between Progestins and Progesterone. So people could definitely also check that out where I go into a bit more detail and provide some citations on that. Yeah, I'll definitely link to that. What yeah. is what is estradiol and why is it important? Because I I we all talk about estrogen, but there are actually different types of estrogen that our body makes during our menstrual cycle. So why is estradiol something that's really important? It has, you know, some different benefits. Sure, let's talk about that. And I'll I'll start by clarifying something that is also quite important. Estrogen is a generic term that can be used to describe it's to used to describe anything estrogenic, including estradiol, which is our ovaries' main estrogen, the, the most important estrogen in the body. It, as the term estrogen can also describe the ethanol estradiol for, that's in a lot of hormonal birth control. It can also describe um, a few other estrogens that we make in the body, as well as you know phytoestrogens and xenoestrogens. And so estrogen is a generic term. Progesterone is not a generic term. The word progesterone refers specifically, precisely to the hormone that our ovaries make after ovulation. That's it. I mean, you can also take real progesterone. We can go into that. But it's this is, I think, where a lot of the confusion comes from is because estrogen is a generic term, we tend to think progesterone is as well, but it's not. Hmm. So in answer to your question, what is estradiol? It's the main estrogen that our ovaries make on the path to ovulation. And it has many, many benefits, um, including, well, just the body loves estrogen, loves estradiol. In fact, um, I think in my second book, I give the quote of uh, estradiol is like chocolate to the mitochondria, to the body, to the cells. <laughs> I like that. Um, it's, it's very beneficial. Everyone wants a little bit, like every cell wants a bit of it. And so it has benefits on insulin sensitivity and neurogenesis and mitochondrial function, all these nice things. Um, it thickens the, improves the health of the uter- of the sorry the intestinal lining, the um, like the mucus layer in the intestinal lining. It reduces intestinal permeability. Obviously, it also works on the uterus and the breasts and the brain. Um, and just to be clear, 
when we're met, like when we're in our reproductive years, we make quite a huge amount from the ovaries. But the baseline is to also make estradiol inside each and every cell. Like men and men and children and menopausal women all make estradiol as well inside the cell because it's so beneficial. So we have a, a few different mechanisms, ways to make it. I just want to take a moment to remind you to go ahead and put on your Blue Blocks glasses. In the last few weeks, there have been days where I don't realize I'm not wearing my blue light blocking glasses while looking at screens. And if I don't have them on while just doing normal stuff, like working on my computer, my phone, and then at night watching a show with the kids, I am a disaster. I have horrible eye strain, headaches, nausea, and trouble sleeping. This is because blue Blue light is incredibly stimulating and can negatively impact your circadian rhythms. In 2021, I firmly believe proactively filtering out blue light with Blue Block's computer and their Sleep Plus glasses is an absolute necessity. The Blue Block's computer glasses filter out all the harsh blue light we experience when looking at our screens. They're clear, they don't have a color. And then the Sleep Plus glasses block all blue and green light between 400 nanometers to 550 nanometers, which is the exact range that has been shown in clinical trials to disrupt melatonin and negatively impact our sleep. To get our special 15% discount, go to blueblocks.com slash wellfed. That's blueblocks, so B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com slash wellfed. And then our code is wellfed at checkout. These glasses are super high quality. They are comfortable and they are stylish. I don't mind wearing them all day. I don't even realize I'm wearing them. I actually have three pairs because I'm extra, but I, I wanted a spare in case I lost mine, which has actually happened and it was awful. They were actually stuck in the couch cushions. Uh, I love the look of the frames. And if you need helping anything anything out, just come over to our Well-Fed Women Holistic Health community on Facebook and I can help. Again, that's blueblocks.com slash wellfed. And then use our code WELLFED for 15% off and you'll get free shipping worldwide. So ovulation, estrogen obviously has a role in ovulation. Most people think that it's really only important if you want to make babies. I'm pretty sure I hadn't really thought about ovulation until it was, you know, came time to either prevent or or hope for a pregnancy. So when it comes to your period, why is ovulation so important? Well, ovulation is how women make hormones. And the analogy I often use is to say that ovulation is only for making a baby would be like saying testicular function and testosterone for men is only to make a baby. Hmm. When clearly they benefit from their testosterone, just as we benefit from our estradiol and progesterone that we make with an ovulatory menstrual cycle. That means a real menstrual cycle. And we're calibrated to have that, right? So we, we're supposed to, I mean, we evolved to, I'm an evolutionary biologist before I became a naturopathic doctor. So I see almost everything through the lens of evolution. We, our body is calibrated to have, you know, 30 or 40 years of exposure to estradiol and progesterone, either from menstrual cycles, or in the case of many of our ancestors, it would have been in the form of pregnancy, because of course, they had more pregnancies mm -hmm. than we do on average. And so, yeah, but either way, the, the 
the bones, the you know, the muscles, the brain, everything is expecting to have those decades of exposure to estradiol and progesterone. And that builds what's called an estrogen score, which means, if, you know, the more years you've had of menstruating, the long term, the lower your risk of dementia and cardiovascular disease, because you've built up what's called metabolic reserve from all of those years of cycling. And I, I, I provide a quote, actually, I think I put the quote in both books. I'm trying to remember. So my colleague, um, Professor Geraldine Pryor is a reproductive endocrinologist at um, the University of British Columbia. She's a close colleague of mine, and she helped me with both books. And she says, um, just if I can get the quote right early in the morning here, she says, um, <laughs> 35 to 40 years of ovulatory menstrual cycling helps to prevent dementia, osteoporosis, cardiovascular disease, and breast cancer. And by breast cancer, she's talking about the exposure to progesterone from regular ovulation because huh. all the lines of evidence so far suggest that progesterone has a beneficial effect on the breasts, a, a breast cancer reducing, risk-reducing effect, which is in stark contrast to progestins, actually, which most of them increase, slightly increase the risk of breast cancer. I don't want to overstate that. I mean, the risk of breast cancer from hormonal breast control is still quite low, but it's, I'm just using it now to kind of compare and contrast with our, you know, our real progesterone has that benefit on breasts. Hmm. So if I could draw conclusions from that, progesterone has a lot of health benefits. It has a lot of health promoting qualities, specifically when it comes to breast health and ovulation yeah is how you make progesterone. So by Correct. ovulating regularly and regularly having a healthy menstrual cycle, you have a decreased risk of, of experiencing a lot of health conditions that might be, you know, negatively impacted by the lack of progesterone. Exactly. Long term. So there was a recent study, and I, again, we could put this in the show notes if you want, from the British Medical Journal. It was like literally maybe just the last six months, six months ago. It was about... They were. This was a, you know, a long-term study looking at um, uh, basically lifespan in correlation with years of menstrual cycling. So they found that they could found that women who had more years of natural menstrual cycling were likely to live longer. And that was a, you know, it was a correlation. They in the study they they cannot speak about causation, but I think we can mm -hmm. infer some things from that. And they actually specifically found that women who use hormonal birth control had a, you know, slightly decreased lifespan on average. So there's something there, right? Like there's a signal from from mm -hmm. what's happening with this. And I think because we were 50 or 60 years into this basically three generations of women using hormonal birth control, future generations will be able to look back and I think track that a bit more and see what that really meant. Mm -hmm. um, because contrary to, I mean, we, we just don't have that kind of information that we've, we've needed about hormonal birth control. All we've had are, you know, some statistics about, um, you know, how likely you are to suffer like a you know fatal blood clot from the pill which is fortunately still quite unlikely although it does happen but what we haven't had and what we're going to start to see is kind of these longer big picture um statistics about longevity and also about things like mood which so for decades women were saying hormonal birth control had a negative effect on mood and for decades 
many doctors were saying, no, that's not possible. You're imagining that. And of course, now hmm. we know the evidence is pretty clear from a number of studies that have come out recently that hormonal birth control definitely can affect mood. It's biologically plausible because hormones affect the brain. And it's there in the studies as well that there's an increased, slight but pretty significant, you know, increased risk of anxiety and depression from pill use or from actually any type of use of hormonal birth control. And interestingly, one of the studies was on, looked at the use of the pill in teenagers and then their risk of anxiety and depression years later, even after they stopped the pill. And what the research and they found a risk, and what the researchers concluded is that obviously exposure to those hormone-like drugs during those formative years, when the brain is changing quite a lot in your teen years and into your twenties, can alter brain structure potentially and kind of outcomes for mood. Wow. Yeah, I know personally. That's kind of when I was on it briefly. If I couldn't, I couldn't make it past like two, two to three weeks because of the the mood shifts. Like I felt my anxiety go up, and it's interesting because if you, you know, say, "Hey, I'm having these issues," you're either brushed off or um, told to try something else. You know, try different, try a different pill or whatever, and. Um, it can be really invalidating if you're really struggling and having these side effects, but it's like kind of brushed off. So um, ovulation yeah. is obviously how you make progesterone. And now everybody's like, OK, well, how do I how how do I know if mm -hmm. I'm ovulating? So if somebody has a period, can they assume that they are ovulating? No, no, because an ovulatory cycles cycles a bleed in which, well, you can't even really call it a cycle if there's no ovulation, but anovulatory bleeds are common. And so they're more like a breakthrough bleed. Basically, that's a, a bleed where, that's a situation where you made estrogen, so you built up a uterine lining, which just eventually just kind of lets go and sheds, which is different than going through all the proper stages of being exposed to progesterone and maturing and, you know, changing and then shedding of the uterine lining, which is why typically anovulatory bleeds, not always, but often anovulatory bleeds are a bit, they're longer. Like they're not the kind of three to five day nice flow period. They might go on for like seven or eight days or 10 days and they're kind mm. of on and off spotting. And that's more typical of an anovulatory bleed. The situation with anovulatory bleeds is, I'll just run, you know, run through it. So any woman can have them. I mean, they're they're not they're reasonably common to have, you know, during a time of stress or t definitely under eating. The first step before you lose your period from under eating, you'll switch to anovulatory bleeds. So that that can happen. Um, other situations where anovulatory bleeds are more dominant would be well, definitely on the progestin only methods of hormonal birth control. So implants, the mini pill, those typically cause an anovulatory bleeds. PCOS or polycystic ovarian ovary syndrome is another situation where anovulatory bleeds are quite common. And also, of course, perimenopause, which is our second puberty in our 40s, is a time when we start to have more of anovulatory bleeds. And therefore, the key feature, obviously, of an anovulatory bleed is you didn't make progesterone. Like you made hmm. no progesterone. So that's where the, that's probably the situation where Estro the phrase estrogen dominance is most accurately 
you know, used. I actually don't use the phrase estrogen dominance because I find it's not precise enough, but I speak more about typically, you know, are you ovulating or not? Is it an ovulatory cycle or not? And the way you know, super easy, is you track your temperatures. And with ovulation and the manufacture of progesterone, then temperature goes up by about half a degree Fahrenheit, 0.3 of a degree Celsius. And just a fun fact, I don't know if you knew this, but we make in a healthy menstrual cycle in the luteal phase, that's the phase after ovulation, we make 100 times more progesterone than estradiol. Hmm. So we always see them portrayed on the little cycle graphs as looking quite even, but actually we make a just monstrous amount of progesterone, hmm. which says a few things. I think is progesterone is very, a very important hormone. It's obviously also a less, not as strong a hormone as estradiol because you don't need very much estradiol to get a pretty massive effect. Hmm. That's super interesting. I like that. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about period problems. And I want to address two before we jump into some of the questions from our community. So one of the things that I that I, a lot of my, my community struggle with is PMS and luteal phase issues, which I'm sure now we're going to talk more about how that might be related to ovulation or not actually ovulating and imbalances in progesterone and or estrogen. So what causes PMS and some of those symptoms that women experience? And is it, can it be simplified to it's a hormonal imbalance? No, no, it's, it's not. I'd say it's not a hormonal imbalance. Actually, it generally, typically anovulatory cycles don't present with PMS. You, you really need to, ovulation is kind of by definition, you know, there for PMS to happen. So, and there's different as to what causes it, there's different factors. And I think it's gonna be different for different women. Mm-hmm. Um, in my latest book, especially my second book, Hormone Repair Manual, I talk through kind of four different aspects of PMS. I'll I'll talk them through a little bit now. So one is the hormone prolactin. There can be the situation of kind of borderline high prolactin, which definitely can contribute to PMS, premenstrual symptoms, mood or breast pain, headaches. But one of the major ones that I work with, with my own patients, I I speak about quite a lot of my blog and my books is a mast cell um, or histamine reaction Mm -hmm. to estrogen, essentially. So um, when you this, and people who are more in this category might also get some headaches or mood symptoms around ovulation as well. Which so when estrogen goes high, it can which is you know high just before ovulation and then high again in the luteal phase, it can um, stimulate an immune reaction, which also stimulates more estrogen. So it can be can become kind of a vicious cycle. But that's typically associated with you know, headaches rashes, nasal congestion, breast pain, irritability, insomnia. So often then my strategy is to not try to modulate the hormones, but actually to calm the immune system, right? Hmm. To have more hormonal resilience because it's normal for estrogen to go up and down and for progesterone to go up and down. That's how the cycle is structured. So we don't want to flatten our hormones. We want to instead have an immune system and and a brain and a physiology that is resilient to that normal up and down. So the other factors with premenstrual mood is just the just the straight out dropping of estradiol and progesterone, especially in the three to four days before the period. If that's when the mood symptoms are strongest, then it's about 
again, by, you know, using anti-inflammatory diet and supplements, trying to kind of shelter the brain from that um, drop in hormones at the end of the cycle. And also that's where taking a bit of progesterone, natural progesterone can sometimes relieve because it can, especially if someone has a cycle or like a luteal phase that is not, where they're not making a robust you know, strong amount of progesterone that holds through the entire luteal phase. If it's dropping, if progesterone is dropping away too quickly, then coming in with some extra progesterone can help to relieve that. There's also, just for anyone listening who's thinking, some people might be thinking, well, I've heard that progesterone is the, you know, the cause of PMS. I would say that's not the case. For most women, progesterone is quite calming. It works on the GABA receptor in the brain. It's quite helpful. There are a few women, it's about one in 20, who have what can only be described as a paradoxical reaction to progesterone. They potentially can have an anxiety reaction to progesterone. It's the minority of women. But when that happens, again, it's a part of an inflammatory response. It's to do with, um, I have a blog post about this, it's to do with sort of a, a, a GABA receptor in the brain that is not as resilient as it could be. And a lot of that's downstream from histamine and inflammation. Hopefully that makes sense. I mean, I know obviously that's quite a few factors. I, I guess the main message is it's not just about, you know, too much estrogen or not about enough progesterone or vice versa. It's, it's more, a little bit more nuanced than that. And fortunately, I actually, I've stated this multiple times, premenstrual mood is one of my favorite things to treat because it should respond pretty dramatically to some of the treatments listed in my books or you know talked about widely like one of the most common treatments is magnesium plus vitamin b6 has a the brain loves that combination that's very Mm -hmm. stabilizing for um gaba receptors and producing more gaba in the brain so you said yes you said calming the immune system so like the immune system is reacting to estrogen so when you say calming the immune system are you saying kind of doing the things like reducing stress and eating an anti-inflammatory diet or how, how can we do things that like calm the immune system down and maybe reduce that histamine reaction? Yeah, one of the big ones, it is about um, reducing inflammatory foods and treating the guts, which I'm, I'm guessing you sort of know all about the link mm-hmm. between gut and, and chronic inflammation. The big one for me, for my patients that I've observed can really make a difference is trying some time off normal cow's dairy. Dairy, not in everyone. Some people truly are fine with dairy, so I'll acknowledge that. But some people, I'd say about one in three, have an inflammatory reaction to what's called A1 casein, one of the proteins in normal cow's dairy. And that simple change of getting that out can actually do quite a lot for calming mast cells. There's actually one of the Australian universities, um, Deakin University, is currently doing a study on A1 casein versus A2 casein for premenstrual mood. And I'm eagerly awaiting their mm-hmm. results. Mm-hmm. They're actually, you know, um, tracking mood, I think, with a dietary intervention and also measuring in the urine the metabolite, the inflammatory metabolite that some people make from A1 casein, the dairy protein. So, that's sort of a more specific intervention that I would use. But it's it's often not as simple as just that one diet change. It's about um, sort of a, a yeah, general anti-inflammatory approach with diet, perhaps anti-histamine-reducing like approach and mm-hmm. looking at some of the supplements to reduce inflammation and calm the brain as well. 
Yeah. Do you ever uh, recommend like taking GABA or taking L-theanine or anything that like because you mentioned magnesium and B6, which is it's really interesting, all the research on that. And, and there's even been studies that show like taking magnesium reduces PMS symptoms. And it's obviously for yeah. a pretty per, like, <laughs> you know, for all the things that you've been talking about, like that's why. Yeah. But do you recommend other supplements that people, you know, might try for PMS, especially if they're dealing with like mood issues or um, even like insomnia? Yeah. So there's lots of ways to support what's called GABAergic or GABA tone in the brain. Basically, GABA, as you, I'm sure you know, is a hugely important neurotransmitter. It's pretty involved mm-hmm. in this whole PMS story. So I don't typically use prescribed GABA supplements. I've tried them. I, I'm not anti them. I just, my understanding is they don't readily cross the blood brain barrier. Um, mm-hmm. GABA obviously is made in the brain. Um, but there's lots of ways to nutritionally to support GABA production. So mm-hmm. vitamin B6 is one of the main ones. Uh, magnesium can also help to support GABA. The other, there's a couple of amino acids that I use. So I just uh, reshared my blog post about taurine. I'm a huge fan of the amino acid taurine. I don't know how mm-hmm. familiar you are with it. it. It actually also interacts with GABA receptors. It, it possibly has its own receptors in the brain. So it may be a, neuro, a calming neurotransmitter in its own right, like in its own. So it's... Um, I, I typically prescribe, so down here in Australia, New Zealand, we, I can access these pretty great um, magnesium powders that have some B vitamin, activated B vitamins and magnesium and magnesium glycinate and taurine. And that combination is quite helpful for PMS. Glycine, the amino acid glycine is the other calming amino acid. Hmm. Um, yeah, so that's the kind of approach. Also, zinc is very helpful for the brain. The brain loves zinc, um, hmm. it's particularly the hippocampus in the brain, which is the part that regulates the adrenal HPA axis. So zinc can also be quite helpful. Again, it's things because period symptoms are an expression of general health, right? So it makes sense that supporting the brain nutritionally will also help with PMS symptoms, right? Like it's not a separate Mm -hmm. mood symptoms before the period are not a separate issue from just a tendency to mood symptoms generally. Yeah. Yeah. So the second thing that you really, well, you're an expert in a lot of things, but the second thing that you talk about in your book, which I think is is pretty confusing for a lot of people, is endometriosis. So is endometriosis an autoimmune condition? Because there's been a lot of talk about that over the years. And, and what are some maybe underlying root causes of endometriosis? Okay. First of all, endometriosis is not absolutely not a hormonal condition, full stop. Like Mm. usually hormones, women with endometriosis, their hormones are pretty normal as in they're cycling. They cycle normally, assuming they're not on hormonal birth control. That side of things seems pretty okay. It is a disease of immune dysfunction, fundamentally. I have backed away from using the term autoimmune because that's controversial and possibly not that accurate and possibly not even necessary to like label it as autoimmune. It has a lot of similarities with other, with other autoimmune diseases, particularly inflammatory bowel disease. Definitely the the women who there was um, a study that um, a a researcher named Jeffrey Braverman, unfortunately he never um, peer reviewed published these results, but he was able with his patient population, he found that, I think mo- like the vast majority of women with endometriosis have the 
celiac genotype or the autoimmune genotype. So hmm. that makes sense to me. There's usually autoimmune disease in the family or individually, like people who tend to, who have endometriosis will tend to have autoimmune thyroid disease or celiac disease in the family, although not necessarily with themselves. So there's a strong immune component. Most of the research, current research, of which there's a lot, is all about the immune dysfunction, trying to describe that, trying to move towards what I see coming as a paradigm shift in conventional treatment for endometriosis. I was totally going to switch to immune treatment at some point rather than hormonal suppressive treatment. Hmm. At the moment, those drugs don't exist yet. So we're left with all the potentially natural ways to modify immune dysfunction and reduce that kind of chronic inflammation. There's a, a big part of it is to do with the gut microbiome. I'll just state very you know, clearly, I'm following the research that's called the microbial hypothesis of endometriosis, which I've spoken to some of the researchers in person about this. There is evidence for what's you know, called a translocation of gram-negative bacteria from the gut to the pelvis. So the pelvis has a microbiome as well, right? Like it's normal for <laughs> there to be a population of not of bacteria within the broader pelvis, not obviously at the levels that it is inside the gut. But when that population is skewed to gram-negative, it's just basically the E. coli coming from the gut as part of intestinal permeability, but into the pelvis. When that happens plus a, you know, the right kind of immune, like the, that immune, vulnerable to immune dysfunction gene, genes, genotype, that's when you can start to get the endometriosis picture. It's a very active kind of inflammation with the lesions um, that seems to possibly be driven by what's happening at the gut and um, what's called lipopolysaccharide or LPS toxin from gram-negative bacteria in the pelvis. So that, I mean, that gives you an idea of how I approach it. I've um, written about it a bit in both books. I typically, with my own patients, start with the gut, especially, there's almost, al not always, but almost always SIBO or intestinal permeability hmm. going on um, with endometriosis, which is good in the sense that we can treat that, right? Like we can start with that. So I would you know, have some protocols around that and also putting in place some of the nutrients that help to, again, regulate, normalize immune function. And that's mm -hmm. where you can start to see some pretty interesting results. Um, some women can achieve pain-free. I mean, th the question is, it's not so much... Uh, whether the endometriosis lesions are completely gone, that's not always necessarily the goal. They, if they're, if the whole immune reaction of what's going on in the pelvis, if that calms down to the point of no pain, then that's uh, that would be a remission from this disease, not a cure. I would never mm -hmm. claim that, but endometriosis can be improved to the point that there's no pain, no symptoms. Yeah, I know so many women experience such excruciating pain with it. And I think one of the things that I know a lot of people, including myself, we always think, oh, well, let's talk about hormones just because of no. where it is. But you're saying you need to focus on the gut. So would your... Immune. 
Yep. And your yeah. yeah, your immune system. So would you maybe say like some doing something like a like a stool test, a GI map test to look for imbalances and then a breath test to look for the SIBO, treat that and then you'll start to see some of like a, a like a relief a relief of symptoms. Yeah, I don't do a, I don't currently do a lot of microbiome testing just because I don't know about you, but I'm really not yet confident about where the research is on that, like how to apply that clinically. I think Mm -hmm. probably more on target would be assessing for SIBO, Mm -hmm. um, either based on symptoms or with a breath test. SIBO is usually there. I I mean, SIBO or some variant of that, like it's it's what's going on probably in the small intestine, which again, you're not going to see with just a microbiome mapping of the large bowel kind of what's coming out in the stool is not necessarily telling the story of what's happening in the small bowel because as you know the small bowel is generally supposed to have quite a relatively low bacterial count Mm -hmm. having a lot of e coli in the small bowel is just in itself inflammatory and potentially setting up for that intestinal permeability situation so i work with diet and assessing stomach acid kind of potentially um fixing that i also use the which I'll mention, but I would just advise listeners to maybe get a clinician's help with this. But I also use the herbal medicine berberine or a combination with berberine, which is a natural antimicrobial to at least in the initial stages of treatment to try to knock back some of that unhealthy gut bacteria population, which, and you're going to know it's working because the bloating will improve, right? Mm. (laughs) Digestive symptoms will improve months before the pain does so that at least gives you sense that you know you're moving in the right direction and when you say yeah. stomach acid support are you do you are you like prescribing hydrochloric acid supplementation sometimes you, yeah yeah okay sometimes sometimes yeah because low hcl as you know can um create a vulnerability to SIBO and problems mm-hmm. in the small bowel we need that acid barrier that's a normal mm-hmm functioning of the gut and women in particular it's even more than men can be vulnerable to low stomach acid especially in the kind of gluten sensitive population that that seems to go kind of hand in hand with that autoimmune gluten sensitive hopefully this is not too technical for your listeners Mm -hmm. i think you said that a lot of your listeners have a um yeah, sort of a literacy in some of this. So I said they're I'm very smart. Technical. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> These people are very yeah. smart. You can talk high level. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So here's some questions from the community I want to jump into. Uh, let's just start with birth control and, and getting off of it and like, you know, some of the, the symptoms that happen with that. Denise says, if you've been on birth control for a long time, 20 years, does your goal have to be to get off it? My husband and I are not having children and being on the pill minus progesterone only is just easy. I don't have any negative side effects. I'm otherwise really quite healthy. Uh, Should I be focused on getting off the pill? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, if I guess straight out, I mean, I guess I would have to say if someone is not having, you know, no noticeable symptoms and feels healthy and I wouldn't necessarily make a blanket statement that everyone has to get off the pill. No, Mm -hmm. but I guess I might invite, I might just plant the seed that you don't actually know how you'd feel like you might feel a lot better off it and just not realize, but if you've been on it for a long time, like women talk about this kind of awakening feeling coming off it. It's like, Oh my goodness, I came back to myself or I didn't know, you know, this kind of brightening of their mood or kind of brightening of how they feel. So 
I would just put that out there as a possibility. I guess I would also make the point that of what we talked about at the beginning of the episode, that there's some evidence, not conclusive yet, but growing evidence that years, you know, decades of ovulatory cycling exposure to progesterone has long-term effects in terms of risk reduction for certain disease processes. So, you know, I certainly feel, I'd probably state that on average, I think women are, in terms of general health, better off with their own hormones compared to progestins or other contraceptive drugs. But everyone's different. Everyone's is a different situation. And um, yeah, that's my answer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Hopefully that's a good enough answer. Yeah. 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 Uh, This is from Jessica. She said she had the Mirena IUD for the past 12 years recently removed and her period was super heavy, lasted seven days and it was horrible. I've never had a period with the IUD, so I'm expecting there is an adjustment period. How much time does it take your body to adjust to no birth control in your system? Let's talk about the hormonal IUD because it's actually quite different from the pill or the implants or the other things we've been talking about so far. So it's different in the sense that it it is the only type of hormonal birth control for which the dose of progestin is low enough to permit ovulatory cycling. So the hormonal IUD, so it's not progesterone, like no there's no progesterone in any type of hormonal birth control. It's the drug levonorgestrel, which is a progestin, but it acts locally in the uterus to thin the uterine lining and dramatically reduce flow. That's its main perk. Obviously, it can prevent pregnancy as well, but not by preventing ovulation. It just prevents pregnancy by its local effect on the uterine lining and the cervical fluid. Um, so the hormonal IUD is unique in that you can cycle but not bleed potentially because for some women they don't bleed at all on the hormonal IUD, but they're still cycling. Like they're still ovulating, which is quite interesting because it's the opposite of the pill with the pill, especially if you're dosing it monthly with the pill, you bleed, but don't cycle bleed, but don't ovulate potentially with the hormonal IUD, you can ovulate, but not bleed. So it's, it's completely opposite. So in answer to the question, Okay, put it this way. Of all the types of hormonal birth control, I'm usually least concerned about the hormonal IUD. And for someone who, especially into if they're perimenopausal or in their 40s and potentially prone to very heavy bleeding, that's when some of my patients are on the hormonal IUD where I might say, look, we're going to do all the natural things as well, but plus use the hormonal IUD to lighten flow because it can be, it's quite, it's very good at that. All that said, it's not the only way to lighten flow. In both books, I talk about strategies for lightening periods, which work quite well. Actually, this is where dairy-free comes into it again. Removing cow's dairy can dramatically lighten flow in some women. I also provide treatment strategies, um, such as taking progesterone can lighten flow, um, zinc and turmeric. and There's different kind of ways to potentially do that, and also making sure your iron you're not iron deficient because heavy flow can cause iron deficiency, obviously, but iron deficiency can worsen heavy flow. So that can become a vicious cycle. So I have quite a lot of experience treating, treating heavy flow. I think in younger women, it usually responds, you know, quite well to some of these things I'm talking about, but if someone's listening and they're 48 and has been bleeding through their clothes and, you know, has those really crazy heavy periods, then that might be a time where the hormonal IUD is actually probably the best thing. Hmm. 
Yeah, this question is from Jacqueline. She says, can hormonal imbalances lead to GI issues? I get my period approximately every 18 days and I have diagnosed gut motility issues. Okay, first of all, a period every 18 days is not an ovulatory cycle. Like, that's almost by definition not going to be a cycle, like a healthy menstrual cycle where ovulation is happening, right? As per Mm -hmm. our previous criteria, like between 21 to 45 days. So I would say already there's something not quite right. Um, And that could be confirmed by testing progesterone or tracking temperatures. In answer to the question, can hormones, hormones totally affect the gut? Yes. So, I mean, hormones affect the microbiome, affect the motility, affect mucus lining, all of that. And vice versa, what's happening in the gut, inflammation in the gut can totally also affect hormones and our sensitivity to hormones. So I guess in a situation like that, I would be, I would treat the gut. So I would try to figure out what, what the gut needs. And also at the same time, be trying to figure out why ovulation is not occurring, um, possibly just from the gut inflammation itself, or there might be other factors. Hmm. Um, wait, this is from Jessica. She says ways to increase progesterone and ovulate when you have longer cycles. So 35 plus days and struggle with adrenal fatigue in quotations, low cortisol and hypothyroid issues. I'd also like to know your thoughts on intermittent fasting for women, especially if you're struggling with hormonal imbalances. Mm hmm. Right. So is there's there, a lot yeah, there. Like increasing, yeah. yeah, increasing progesterone is kind of a, a big topic in of itself. So you can just pick and choose what you like. It's kind of the whole thing. Right? Yeah. Like it's my first book, Period Repair Manual, is in general about how to ovulate regularly and make more progesterone. Hmm. Except in the case of endometriosis, where it's sort of that's a different thing going on. But like in in terms of regulating your cycle, it's all about promoting ovulation. So then, as I describe in the book. If you're not ovulating regularly or if you're not having a robust ovulation where you make where you have a two-week luteal phase, right, of good temperatures, of good progesterone production, then the question is, what is the obstacle or obstacles to ovulation in your case? Like it's going to be different for every woman. So I'll just give you some examples. So insulin resistance or prediabetes can impair ovulation and lower progesterone but so can on the flip side so can under eating and you know intensive training can one of the in fact you know the cycles um from from under eating you know under eating impairing ovulation it goes through a few gradations like you first might get kind of heavier periods because you're not making as much progesterone to lighten flow then you can have you know a longer follicular phase longer cycle shortening luteal phase finally anovulatory bleed finally nothing at all right like finally over Mm -hmm you know shut down by that process so it's about context and uh, and asking that question what is going on here what is going on with general health that is an obstacle to ovulation in this individual um and, and that's where i mean just to use the example again of on the one hand pcos and insulin resistance and on the other hand under eating and hypothalamic amenorrhea like those are in a way somewhat opposite states but they can mm-hmm. they both impair ovulation right so you you need to figure out which of those it is and that involves 
testing for I test for insulin resistance all the time, like almost not every patient, but a lot of patients I'm testing fasting insulin to try to figure out if they have insulin resistance or not, because then that guides the next into the next question is, you know, how helpful is intermittent fasting? When I prescribe intermittent fasting, it's for women with with insulin resistance, basically for women with under eating. No, a big N.O. on that. <laughs> intermittent fasting is not going to be the thing. If you're already struggling to get enough calories or enough carbohydrate or enough you know, food intake, that is intermittent fasting is not going to help that. But for women with insulin resistance or especially into their 40s, subgentle intermittent fasting, I think, can be beneficial. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah. It does. Yeah. Last yeah. question is about perimenopause. And we did get a lot of questions like, I'm having night sweats. Is this perimenopause? So you yeah. can kind of clear up a few yeah. things for us. She says, I'm having hard times of being overheated. Normally, I'm always cold. I'm almost 42 and my menstrual cycle is still 28 days. Is this the beginning of perimenopause? How can I reduce the terrible symptoms? And is there a way to stop the gaining of the belly fat that comes with it? So I think all women know okay. perimenopause means belly fat. It's like every just like this thing we're all scared of so how, how, yeah. does, how, how, can, how do we know those okay. symptoms yeah so i have a whole book on this all of this so my new book hormone repair manual every woman's guide to healthy hormones after 40 is all about this process of second puberty in answer to the question you know could you be having perimenopausal night sweats at 42 and your cycle still regular absolutely that's hmm. in the book i talk about the, the four phases of perimenopause phase one typically occurs when the periods are still regular, but you're starting to get some symptoms coming through, which is a lot of it's to do with losing, starting to lose progesterone because not ovulating as much or as strongly. So there are tons of treatments that can relieve those symptoms. Um, some of the big ones I talk about in the book for especially the early phase of perimenopause is to help with the hot flushes or night sweats or sleep disturbance is magnesium and taurine. I already talked about that in the premenstrual section of today. Also, movement, especially strength training, like that is very helpful. Also, I have to say it and I have to get it in. I, you know, I need to put include this in this interview is think about no alcohol because the rewiring or the recalibration of the brain that occurs throughout the four phases of perimenopause seems to be particularly vulnerable to alcohol. So what I'm saying is reducing cutting alcohol can can be for some women the single only thing they need to do and then they feel better. Like it it can be that simple. Um I know that's not what people want to hear, <laughs> but I just have to share that piece of information. That's okay. We you know, we'll accept the stuff we don't want to hear. I mean, honestly, it's it makes a huge even me, I'm 35 and taking the alcohol out, I can tell it makes a difference in my overall health. Yeah. And I'm currently and I'm like I don't want to really want to drink anymore and I, I feel like it's causing histamine mm. issues. So, it's something that yep. we enjoy, but also it is a true it's a dependency sometimes. It can turn into something that we, you know, elevate and it be, can become a regular thing and Truth be told, it's not the best in certain cases, especially for your liver. So we have to just weigh the risks of that, too. So, um, for sure. 
Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Laura, so much. I'm actually going to order your hormone repair manual right now because I think it's just going to yeah. be a great resource. Like I've got both and I can, you know, give them to my daughter when she becomes of age and she's getting her period and I can have the, the hormone repair manual because I'll be in my 40s then and we can both be reading. So thank you so much. We'll link to sure. everything you mentioned in the show notes, um, your website, the articles and uh, those books. So I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Uh, for more from Laura, go to laurabrighton.com. For more from me, you can go to coconutsandkettlebells.com. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for being here and submitting all these awesome questions. I really appreciate it. And I will talk to you next week. <laughs>